Welcome back to another episode of The Jacob Johnston Show. I'm going to start this episode a little bit differently than I normally do. Instead of going in and going to the news or what is being reported about the latest current event, I'm going to start off here with an opinion article because this really spoke out and it was written by Andrew Claven over at the Daily Wire titled The Unbearable Rightness of Trump and how his being right so often about so many things has driven the left to the breaking point and has really exposed a lot of the rhinos within the Republican Party, those who do not actually believe in what it is they claim. And so it goes on and starts off with, during the Republican primary of 2015, I played a funny supercut of Donald Trump on my podcast. I had misjudged Trump then, fearing his flaws too much and appreciating his talents too little. The supercut put together all the times and tones in which he said the word China and backed it up with a jazzy bass. I found it hilarious. Well, it was hilarious. But Trump was right about China. And it goes on to talk about the things that Trump has been warning us about, such as, do you remember Trump's inaugural address when he spoke about the American carnage of closed factories and unemployment that was already causing an epidemic of death by despair? He was right about that, too, right, that it required attention when every Democrat and his pet journalist said it was dark to mention it. Right, that it could be fixed when Barack Obama said it couldn't. And right, that it was a matter of policy when conservatives said he was just interfering with the magic of global capitalism. He was right that globalism could not thrive without a strong, self-defending national state. Because nations are just economic structures. They're not just economic structures. They are also moral entities. He was right that borders must be secured. When blithering leftists were ready to virtue signal the West to death and high-minded right-wingers shrugged off a slow-motion invasion, trusting to some imagined protective magic in our creed. He was also right that the American news media had become corrupt and fake. And it goes on to even talking about how he was right so much about China and the threat that they posed. And this really kind of goes on to highlight that our political structure and our news media isn't one that generally puts our best interest at heart. You know, the left is always out there trying to push narrative. They're trying to virtue signal in order to cast anyone who disagrees with them as rotten to the core, evil, bad intentions, and are just trying to oppress people. And the right, the right has for so long just rolled over and played dead. They didn't actually stand up for the values that they claimed to believe in. They didn't fight for anything. They just gave us lip service in order to get elected and then cowered before the media. And that in the time of this pandemic, the things that Trump had been talking about, the things that he had warned us about have come to pass. But he's also shown us with his leadership how he was able to turn things around when the economy was just limping along when we had forgotten what American exceptionalism is or what a booming economy looks like. And since he's done it before, he can do it again, that he can pull us out of a pandemic that really no one saw coming. You know, he can't control whatever happens over in China. But when it comes down to it, we got to start asking ourselves, how long are we going to let the media get away with being so fake all the time? I mean, right now the media is running so much fake stories. And we'll get to some of that in a little bit. And how long are we going to put up with spineless Republicans who claim one thing on the trail to believe in conservative values and then rolls over and lets the left get away with whatever they want to pack bills with funding for leftist organizations while at the same time the right doesn't fight for anything, for any of its value? How long are we going to put up with that? And so I would suggest that you go to the Daily Wire. And no, I don't have any connection with them. I just enjoy some of their content. You know, and read this article. And I think it will be very informative and that it is something that we should go through and discuss a little bit more. Now, we do have some other issues because China is not the only problem that we have on the international stage. You know, some GOP activists are 
advocating that we suspend all work visas into the United States until we're able to not only get our economy back up and going, but until we're able to get people back to work. And this is one of those things that I have advocated for a long time. Even before I had gotten out there publicly with public profiles, podcasting, and all of that, that it never made sense back in 2008 when the economy, you know, was collapsing, unemployment was skyrocketing, and yet we were bringing people in on work visas to fill jobs when American workers were not able to find jobs. You know, when American workers were not being hired. Why is it? that we would continue to go through with immigration during periods of high unemployment when we can't provide for our own. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. You know, I've always stated that immigration should be tied to the economy. During times of labor shortages, yes, have immigration going on. Bring people in to fill jobs when there's not enough people to fill them. But during times, when there is a job shortage, why the heck would we keep bringing people into the country? Why the heck would we just add to the unemployment and make it harder for people to find jobs by increasing competition? It would appear that when you take a look at our immigration policy, it is less about you know meeting supply and demand of labor and more about keeping the job market flooded with excess labor in order to keep wages artificially depressed. Now, on the one hand, you can say that that is about subsidizing businesses in a way where you keep the labor market flooded. Therefore, you don't have to raise wages in order to attract people because people are desperate and looking for you know, work and so they're willing to accept being underpaid because it's better than nothing. You know, there is that particular aspect of it. You know, but there's also the aspect of the Democrats where they, of course, want to keep as many people unemployed as possible and dependent upon the government in order to advance their agenda and convince you that, hey, you can't survive without the government. Therefore, we need a big, massive government that is in control of every aspect of your life. However, we find ourselves, because of globalism, and this ties into Andrew Clavin's piece, that because of globalism and all the manufacturing that we have shipped overseas, not just to China, but to elsewhere, we find ourselves completely vulnerable. So as I had stated here, as we were going through and talking about unemployment and immigration and trying to suspend work visas? Well, there are other visas uh, that get issued as well. And so, as you know, we do have a combination of medicine that appears to be effective in treating the coronavirus. There is a country that can supply us with it. And no, this time I'm not talking about China. And they have agreed to supply us with it, but they have put conditions on it. And if we want to get the medication in order to keep the death rates in this country low from the coronavirus, we find ourselves at the mercy of this demand. And that is the demand of India, where the government of India is linking the medicine, the hydrochloricin, or however you pronounce that, you know, that they are linking uh, the delivery of that medicine to Trump's support of India's H-1B visa workers. And this is being reported by Breitbart, where it says India's president is leaking the delivery of U.S. purchase, however you pronounce that, a name I'm horrible at pronouncing medication names, uh, medicine, to his demand that President Donald Trump helps India's outsourcing workers stay past the expiration of their work visas says a report in one of India's leading newspapers. And so here it is, because of our manufacturing being shipped all around the world, not just to China, but to other countries, the pandemic, the screw-ups by government for so long that now we're in a situation where we are at the mercy 
of so many different countries that may have the ability to produce the medicine that we need because we don't have the manufacturing as well. And so we see that the economy has been shut down because of it. We see that unemployment is skyrocketing. You know, over 16 million people unemployed. And yet, and yet, our ability to get the medication is being linked to India being able to have their people get work visas to come to the United States to take jobs that Americans so desperately need, to take jobs that, you know, Americans will, you know, need in order to get off of unemployment when the economy reopens. And we see that they're trying to make it difficult for us to be able to take care of our own first because India, looking after their own best interests, is looking for a way in order to have their workers be able to make you know money here in the United States and send it back to India, much like what we see in Mexico, because we're not talking about permanent residents. We're talking about guest workers, people who come here to fill a job, they try to save up as much money as possible, and they send it back home to their families. And so now we're in a difficult situation. Our immediate need is medicine in order to prevent the deaths of many people. But our long-term needs is to be able to try and ensure that the jobs that will be available when the economy opens back up and the jobs that will be created after the, com- after the economy opens back up will be for American workers in order to get back to working off of welfare. And it seems like we're having to choose between these two because we have left ourselves vulnerable. And so now what do we do? How do we solve this problem? Well, we solve it by doing what we should have done in the first place, what Trump has been advocating for since the very beginning, bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States, become less dependent on other countries, stop intertwining our economy with other countries are the dependency on other countries to fill our economic need. You know, it's really kind of sad that we are in this situation, just like it was sad that it was going on in 2008. How do we deal with this? What should we as the American people demand? Because this really is a problem. It wouldn't be a problem if we had the manufacturing right here in the United States and never let it go offshore to begin with. But we did, and we can argue about what we wish the situation was. But here's what the situation is, and that's all we can deal with. So I think the biggest lesson that we are learning from all of this, and tying back to Andrew Clavin's article, uh, opinion piece actually, about the unbearable rightness of Trump, is that we need to re-examine our strategic alliance with countries around the world our outsourcing of our manufacturing capabilities and our entanglements of our economies with other economies and what we should do so that in the future, when something happens, we're not left vulnerable and at the mercy to the demands of other countries. And I can't really blame these other countries because they're actually looking out for the best interest of their people, at least in the case of India. Now, I don't know a whole lot about India's internal politics, but I can see in this particular situation, they're looking out for themselves, just like we should. Because in reality, there is no global community. There is no no, uh, global uh, agreement on everything. Every country besides the United States has been operating for years based off of what was in their own best interest, while America was being sold a bill of lies, a bill of lies about globalism, about international community, about international cooperation. And it also leads to an understanding why certain world leaders have not liked Trump. Because in essence, there is some philosophical disagreements because a lot of world leaders are leftists. 
but it's also because they got used to being able to have the United States roll over for them. They got so used to the United States becoming weak and taking a back seat to everybody that Trump coming through and bringing back the American dominance was a threat to what our politicians have screwed up all these years. It was a threat to the gravy train that other countries have gotten used to. It was only by weakening America could the left push through their agenda, and it was only through the fake news that they were able to basically get the right to act like a beaten dog, a whimpering dog, one who was too afraid to stand up to anything, one that cowered, rolled over, and played dead. And the fact that conservatives were actually standing up and showing a backbone again was a threat to everything that the left had been trying to accomplish and its downgrading of American society, trying to say. But to highlight uh, an article here, this article is also from the Daily Wire. Uh, It goes on and it's titled, Test Might Explain Lower Virus Numbers in California Hit Earlier Than Suspected. And it goes on to say that they are coming out with an antibody test because California has 40 million people in there, you know, and yet they don't have as many infections or deaths as New York, who has half the population. And they were thinking that this may be because coronavirus actually got to the United States earlier than expected already circulated throughout California, and now California already has herd immunity. And this is something that I was kind of alluding to when I point out that you know, New York, even though that doesn't have the most population, is experiencing the most deaths from the coronavirus when you would expect that maybe California, having twice the population, should have more numbers. And that is not particularly the case. Now, as we go out there and we try to ask questions about the coronavirus, and we try to ask questions about the data that we are getting, we understand that the left is trying to attack us, trying to attack anybody asking questions, trying to attack anybody pointing out holes in the data. They don't want anybody talking about this. They want their narrative to be accepted as undeniable truth, and anybody who doesn't go along with the program is downplaying or underplaying the threat of the coronavirus, and that doing so is dangerous and putting lives at risk, and therefore we need to just shut up and do what we're told. And when the left acts like that, that's when we should be asking the most questions, and that's when we should be the most skeptical, especially considering everything that we are seeing going on here. Now, we don't know what the actual risk of the coronavirus is. To know what the risk is, you need to be able to have a numerator and a denominator to figure out the death rates. And the left is making sure we don't have any of that information. And one of the things that is pointed out, especially uh, by this article here about California, is that we don't know how many people have actually been infected. Because we didn't have the testing kits, and even right now, testing is being limited to those with just the most severe symptoms who are being hospitalized. And so we don't know what the infection rate is. If five to six times more people have been infected than what we have as confirmed cases, that lowers the death rate quite quite significantly, does it not? You know, and our level of response or reaction to the threat is determined by how much of a threat is it. And no, I am not downplaying it right now. See, our response to something that has a death rate of 1% is different than what our response would be to a death rate of 5% or 10%, right? The, the death rate is really what determines how much of a response we need in order to provide protection to the general public. And the left is doing everything they can to obfuscate that. Now, first off, because we didn't have the testing in the beginning, we don't know how many people have actually been infected. We are determining it by 
confirmed cases, but how many unconfirmed cases do we have? People who got it, especially before we really became aware of coronavirus within the United States, got it, experienced some mild symptoms, recovered, and, you know, going about their day. And we also don't know how many people got it, died of respiratory uh, issues, and were not classified as coronavirus deaths. Now, we'll never be able to figure out how many people died of the coronavirus in the beginning phases before the testing came out, you know, because there's no way to go back and test them. But we can at least go back through here in a little bit to be able to test for antibodies to determine how many people got it. So we will eventually have a good idea of how many people were infected. That's why the left is right now working on trying to inflate the number of deaths from the coronavirus, especially in New York, where if you test positive for coronavirus, then no matter what reason you died, whether that be stroke or cancer or car accident, you're going to be included in the death statistics for coronavirus. You know, there's a difference between dying and having coronavirus and dying from coronavirus. And what I was pointing out in the last episode was that New York in its top five deaths, you know, out of the course of a year, you know, between heart failure, stroke, accidental injury, cancer, and one other item amounts on average to about 12,000 a month. Now, if we assume that those things would continue to happen, except for accidental injuries, I guess, because of the stay-at-home orders. There's less people traveling, so less accidents. But if we take a look at the leading causes of death, and they amount to about 12000 a month, but now we see that instead of 12000 a month, they're only at about, I don't know, let's say they're cut in half, 6000 a month. And the additional 6000 that you know, normally die from these causes, tested positive for coronavirus, even if they were asymptomatic, not showing a single symptom of the coronavirus, and they died from a heart attack, car accident, whatever the case may be. They're going to be included in the death statistics, which is horribly dishonest and seems like it's done intentionally to inflate the death rate. And there's a reason why they're doing that. And now the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, is coming out and saying, well, you know what? We're not even going to necessarily test the people when they die. So not only are they including people that didn't actually die from the coronavirus, but now they're not even going to confirm whether or not the person at the time of death actually had coronavirus when they include them in the death stats. They're just going to go by suspected to have had coronavirus. So why is it that they are so intent on inflating the death rates from this? Well, it's really not that hard to figure out why they are doing this. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about if the threat was only 1%, we would be accepting a lot less in terms of how much control the government is taking over our daily lives than what we would if, say, the death rate was 50%. The higher the death rate, the more the Democrats can go out there and take massive power grabs and implement their authoritarian nature with less pushback. And we see this going on all across the country. We see here that you know, the left and trying to hype up the, you know, threat level and the perceived panic that they're using footage from Italian hospitals and attributing it to hospitals in New York. And they didn't do it just once because the first time they did it, they got caught, they made a retraction and then they did it again. Why? Well, because they know most people didn't see the retraction because it wasn't on air. And seeing that hospital footage and making it seem like it was in New York ups the panic level. 
And we see what the Democrats are doing as they are getting everyone to panic, pushing out a narrative, and blocking anybody from questioning that narrative. You know, as long as we don't know what the actual numbers are, we can't make informed decisions. And we're being told that questioning any of their actions is a public health threat. We have tech companies out there, Facebook and Twitter, censoring social media of any information about the coronavirus or any discussion about the coronavirus that doesn't fit their particular narrative. And of course, they go off and say, well, you know, anything that contradicts the public health experts. But what makes someone an expert? A lot of these people are wrong most of the time, and yet they still get to be called experts. We're told that, you know, the censorship is for our own benefit so that we don't, you know, get fake information and then get infected and die because of that fake information. But, you know, at some point here, I think people need to be able to go off and make their own judgment and decisions about information that they deem to be credible and uncredible. But as long as they're keeping the threat level high and keeping our access to information and discussion low and keeping us in a constant state of panic with inflated death rates, look what they have done. You got Apple and Google out there joining forces in order to update their operating systems to allow for tracking of our movement. You know, being able to use the Bluetooth in our phones to see who we come in contact with, who we are in proximity to, tracking our every movement. This is 1984 Big Brother stuff right here. But of course, it's for public health, public safety. You know, the justification that they're rolling out is so that if someone is infected, they can use all the data from the phone to see who they all came in contact with over a period of two to three weeks and notify everybody. But do you really think that as time goes on, they're going to suddenly stop using this feature? No, it's going to be expected as part of using their phone that they get to track your every movement. Now, we've kind of gotten used to this a little bit with social media companies. I mean, how do you think Facebook knows when one of your friends are nearby? You know, who generally lives in another city and may be coming by for a visit. I mean, we kind of realize that we are giving up privacy. But now, now it's not just for marketing purposes. It's information that they intend to give over to the government. We also see that Democrats are going through and trying to criminalize going to church. Think about that. Our First Amendment right being attacked all in the name of public safety and threatening people who go to church with the idea that their license plate will be recorded and then they will be ordered into a two-week quarantine as punishment for going to church. We see the left trying to deem our Second Amendment rights as non-essential and trying to close down gun stores in order to cut us off from being able to defend ourselves, cut us off from our communities within religion, stay-at-home orders to cut us off from our communities. Now, we can limit the effect of them cutting us off from our communities uh, through online tools, yes, but is there really a substitute for them trying to cut us off from being able to protect ourselves with, with the exercise of our Second Amendment right while they are going off and enacting their authoritarian nature? We see that the Democrats are going out there and promoting a snitch line so that people can go off and tattletale if they see someone that they don't believe is following social distancing guidelines. We see that the left is out there, and they're really trying to strip us of everything and get us used to total government control. We see people being arrested if they go to a park to play kickball with their children. We even see that with orders that you must wear a mask, that people are being dragged off of buses 
if they don't wear a mask. Think about this. This is some third world tyranny crap going on here, and it's all being justified because of the threat of the coronavirus. And as long as they can hype up that threat beyond what it actually is, they can get us to accept more and more tyranny all in the name of public health. And while they are doing this, they are telling us that we better get used to this for the long haul, that the effects of the coronavirus could be with us for the next 18 months. This is designed to get us used to the massive government control over our lives and to make us dependent upon government money, you know, to get us dependent upon the idea of a universal basic income, food stamps, and that we can't survive without the government. This way, after 18 months, because we've adapted to believing that the government can provide for our every needs financially, when it's all said and done, the Democrats won't have to give back as much power and control because we're used to it. We just accept it. It's the way things are. And that's what it is they want to be able to enforce. They've basically gone through and enacted a de facto police state in many parts of the country. And people are just accepting it because they're afraid. That's the point of what the Democrats are doing. But the Democrats are also going out there telling us that we cannot beat the coronavirus until we fix what really ails us. And what really ails us? Oh, no, no, it's not the. It's not the virus. What really ails us is rising inequality. What really ails us is lack of a single-payer health insurance. What really ails us is extreme partisan polarization. Well, okay, that one might actually be true, uh, that one. But that's usually uh, because of the left. And they don't mean, you know, ending their polarization of partisan politics, they mean everyone else should just roll over uh, and play dead for them. Uh, what really ails us? Hostility to the media, expert science, and civil servants. Oh, yes! What really ails us is hostility to the most corrupt people on the face of the planet. The media, which has run fake news, fake stories, and have been caught lying to the American people. We need to stop our hostilities towards those who are lying to us. Experts in science, except for the experts, aren't really experts. Well, many times it's a political hack being raised up as an expert by the lying and crooked media. Science. Well, the left doesn't seem to know what science is because they think any opinion that they have is science as long as they can yell science. And civil servants, which you know, is a joke in and of itself, especially um, with what we're going to talk about later on in this episode uh, with regards to the corruption within the FBI. You know, and then they want to go off and say, what will we learn? And of course, that comes to us from the folks at CNN. You know, facts first, CNN. Yeah, right. Last time they promoted any factual information, I believe... Uh, it was before Ronald Reagan took office. Oh, wait, they weren't around then. So, no, no, CNN was never really a factual or realistic news network. But they want to go off and tell us that's what ails us. That's what we need to fix as we dig in for the next 18 months. And, of course, they're going off while they're enacting their de facto police states and making sure that we get inaccurate information over what the threat is. And I'm not claiming I know what the threat level is of coronavirus. I'm just pointing out that the information we do have is knowingly wrong and purposely wrong. Right? But the New York Times and other leftist news networks are going out there still trying to push that Trump had knowledge beforehand and did nothing. Of course, their first attempt at running this story was blatantly debunked. So now they change the timeline. Except for as they change the timeline, you see that, yeah, actually Trump was responding to this. Oh, but he didn't respond enough. 
But with what he was doing, you were all criticizing him for overreacting. But none of that matters. None of that matters, does it? And of course, the reason why the media and the Democrats are trying to push this narrative that Trump had advanced warning and knowledge and decided not to take action is because they're planning one more attack on democracy. Well, one more uh, continuous attack, but they're trying one more attack before the November election as they try to set themselves up to start new investigations of Trump and his administration. New investigations, this time over the coronavirus response, as they try to say that he handled it wrong and he made mistakes and people died. Except for if we start taking a look here at the fact that the coronavirus may have actually came to the United States and started circulating before anybody really knew about it, before we knew about the outbreak or the extent of the outbreak over in China. By the time any such reports came out or by the time any such reports landed on Trump's desk, it would have already been too late. But they can't have that be the narrative. Oh, no, 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 no. They have to set up the narrative that he dragged his feet so that they have a reason to investigate him yet again, to engage in another witch hunt. Because with the Democrats, it's a never-ending investigation as they hope to uncover something, anything, that they could then use to justify another impeachment attempt. Because they already tried an impeachment attempt once based off of nothing. They want another crack at it. And they want to have another angle in which to justify the never-ending witch hunt. And it's really sad. So we need to start asking more questions. We need to start asking for better data and better transparency over the data. Because if we don't, we're going to lose our democracy and our freedom because the Democrats are continuing their authoritarian nature to enact a police state. And because we're panicking, we're allowing it to happen. And if we allow it to happen for too long, we get too used to it, too comfortable with it. And we end up, as an oppressed people, not knowing any better. Abuse of power, though, is nothing new to the left. We've seen this over the years, such as back in 2012 when the left had used the IRS to target their political opponents. And now we are finding out more and more over just how corrupt Spygate was. So for those of you who have been living under a rock and haven't been keeping up with everything that is going on, we are finding out that Spygate was even worse than we initially thought. Now, it all started off in the 2016 election when the Democrats hired a retired British spy to dig up political dirt on then-candidate Trump. And that spy was Christopher Steele, and he went off and talked to some of his Russian contacts who happened to be Russian disinformation specialist. And then after putting together what they called a dossier, it was spread throughout the political apparatus of government, you know, such as the State Department, who then fed it over to the FBI. Now, the FBI knew that they didn't have any justification to open up an investigation, at least not a criminal investigation, so they opened up a counterintelligence investigation which had a much lower bar and allowed them to be able to spy on the Trump campaign. And based off of the information uh, that we have publicly, it is highly likely that the FBI or some leak within the FBI was taking the information that they were gathering on the Trump campaign and feeding it to the Democrats. And that the information that the FBI was investigating Trump, came out on October 31st, 2016, just about a week before the election. This was obviously designed to be able to hurt President Trump and try and undermine his ability to get elected. And the main thought for the FBI was that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and therefore none of their actions were going to be investigated. However, that was not the case. Trump won, and their actions were being investigated now. 
And throughout this, the FBI and the Democrats have tried to feed us a bunch of BS over why the investigation started to begin with. Now, first, they started going off and admitting that it was the dossier, but once it came out that the Democrats were the ones who paid for that dossier, it looked really bad. So then they tried to go off and they tried to say, no, 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 it was George Papadopoulos. He had this conversation with Alexander Downer, the Australian ambassador, over in a London bar. The problem is what they claim Papadopoulos had said in that conversation was nothing new. It wasn't anything that wasn't already being discussed publicly, as Forbes magazine had published an opinion article talking about the possibility that Vladimir Putin had Hillary Clinton's emails and the three ways in which he could use it in order to damage either her candidacy or undermine her as president on the world stage. So they've had to go back and forth between the dossier and the claims of George Papadopoulos. Neither one of them is actually legitimate. Now, throughout this process, after Comey was fired, and he was fired because he was telling Trump one thing in private, but refusing to follow Trump's order to say what he was saying in private publicly. You know, Comey was trying to help keep an impression that Trump was under investigation when, in fact, they were trying to say that Trump was not under investigation behind closed doors. And Comey wanted to be able to keep the spying operation open. Now, after Comey was fired, and remember, at this point in time, there was no criminal investigation. It was just a counterintelligence investigation. But when Comey was fired, he decided that he was going to get some memos and create them and then leak them to the press through an intermediary to make it seem like Trump fired him in order to squash an investigation which led to the special counsel and the special counsel's investigation and report. However, this leads into just how corrupt the Democrats are, because now what we are seeing here coming out of Spygate is that the FBI knew as early as July 2016 that the information in the dossier was false. They knew because we've seen in the release of, well, footnotes in a lot of the Justice Department documents or FBI documents that were previously classified that have recently been declassified and leaked out. The FBI knew that the Steele dossier contained Russian disinformation. They knew the information that they were being fed and that they were investigating were lies. And yet they continued investigating anyways. I mean, isn't this amazing? They knew that the Russians fed Christopher Steele disinformation as part of their attempts to muck up the 2016 election. And the FBI ignored the fact that it was Russian disinformation and instead continued to use it as justification to investigate President Trump and spy on President Trump, who was then candidate Trump. They knew this was disinformation when they filed for their FISA warrants in order to spy on the Trump campaign. Of course, in those FISA warrants, they lied to the FISA courts. They altered evidence and documents and you know, withheld information that proved the Trump campaign was innocent. So they were lying to the FISA courts anyways. But they knew the information in the Steele dossier was false. It's in their own notes. Their own notes. And it's amazing. So then you start wondering, what the hell was Robert Mueller doing all this time? What was he doing for nearly two years in this investigation, seeing the FBI notes about how this was Russian disinformation and didn't care how the FBI continued the investigation after they knew the in the dossier that they were investigating was a hoax document that had no legitimacy to it whatsoever. And what do we make of the fact that when we take a look at George Papadopoulos, you know, George Papadopoulos had talked with a, what, what's the euphemism 
oh, a human informant, you know, an undercover human resources informant, you know, which is another way to say a spy, you know, a confidential informant. Yeah, it's a spy. Anyways, they tried to go off and make it seem like George Papadopoulos had provided information when talking to that spy that justified the investigation. Well, now the transcript from George Papadopoulos' conversation with the spy the FBI had sent in has been released in which the narrative that the FBI and the left have given us about that has been completely debunked because it turns out that George Papadopoulos said the opposite of what was being claimed in order to justify the investigation. So not only do we have a situation whereby the FBI knew that the dossier that they were investigating was filled with just Russian disinformation, but they lied about George Papadopoulos in order to keep the investigation open. And let's take a little bit and pieces of this transcript, which was over four hours long. Imagine that, four hours long between George Papadopoulos and the confidential human source for the FBI. According uh, to the obtained transcripts, the confidential human source met with George Papadopoulos and asked whether he thought Russia hacked the Democrat National Committee ahead of the Democratic National Convention. Papadopoulos replied, no. The comment made by Papadopoulos are noteworthy because, according to officials, they were never provided or included in the evidence for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court when asked or when seeking the warrant to surveil another Trump campaign aide, Carter Page, over suspicion of Trump campaign ties to Russia. And it goes on, when asked whether he thought the Russians had special interest in the election, Papadopoulos replied, that's bullshit. No one knows who's hacking them, and added that it could be the Chinese, it could be the Iranians, or it could be some Bernie uh, supporters. could be anonymous. You know, the anonymous group, which is a hacking group. Papadopoulos was then asked whether he thought Russia have interest in Trump. They, dude. Uh, No one knows how the president is going to govern anyways. Papadopoulos responded, you don't just say, oh, I like, he said before being cut off. I don't know. Even Putin said it himself. It's It's all like conspiracy theories. The source went on to press Papadopoulos saying, I feel like there's some heavy Trump supporters out there that kind of want to rig this effing election in Trump's favor. And then at the same time, I don't know. Papadopoulos quipped, dude, you, you, there is no rigging in his favor. The source pushed him once again on whether he thought the Trump campaign had anything to do with hacking of the DNC. No, I know that for a fact, he said. I've been working with them for the last nine months. That's, and all this stuff has been happening. What, the last four months? I mean, the the transcript is not necessarily always the clearest here, but Papadopoulos in the conversation recalled someone asking him the same question earlier this year. He asked me that same question, he said, and he actually was like going in and tell the CIA or something if I'd have uh, told him something else. I assume that's why he was asking, and I told him, absolutely not. There's absolutely no reason. First of all, it's illegal, you know, to do that shit. And so Papadopoulos, in this transcript when being pressed, was saying that Russia trying to help Trump was BS. You know, nobody knew how Trump would govern if elected, so there's no reason to want to favor him. and that he's been asked this before, which is quite a different story than what the media has been telling us. And when you combine that, along with the fact that they knew that the Steele dossier was filled with Russian disinformation, then you got to start asking, well, if they knew they had nothing, 
why were they investigating? What was the point behind investigating Trump on knowingly false information and then trying to lie about what a source had said? It's because they never thought they would get caught. That's why they thought they could spy on the Trump campaign, feed the information to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Hillary would get elected and nobody would know. Nobody would know about the investigation into the Trump campaign. Nobody would know that they were investigating fraudulent information. Nobody would know that their claims as to what was said by AIDS to a confidential informant was all BS. You know, which is interesting because in order to get to the point where they could send in a confidential informant to try and, you know, interview members of the Trump campaign, they had to have a reason for that, which means they had to have an open investigation, which now we know the whole point of it was, you know, use the Steele dossier to justify an investigation. Ignore the, all the evidence that you got that the information in the Steele dossier was fake. And then go in and send in human informants and hope that you can get something on tape that, you know, kind of overcomes the fact that the information that you're investigating was false to begin with. It's so corrupt. It is so corrupt. Now, as the left tries to go through and downplay this, I mean, CNN, this is really hysterical. And the article they published on their website here about uh, Justice Department, it's titled Justice Department says it found mistakes and more FISA applications. Oh, it was just mistakes. You know, it, it wasn't anything intentional. It wasn't, you know, some big conspiracy. It was just some mistakes. And they go on and state, Republicans and even the president have grasped onto those page missteps. Missteps. Yeah, you see how they try to use language in order to downplay this. Page missteps as they continue to criticize the FBI's handling of the early Russia investigation and attempt to undercut findings in criminal cases opened by former special counsel Robert Mueller. Now, it's interesting. They want to call it grasping at missteps, you know, and trying to, you know, the criticize the early handling of the investigation to undercut the findings. All right, now, first off, uh, when it comes to the cases uh, brought by Robert Mueller, they have fallen apart in court, right? The criminal prosecution that they say, see, this was justified because you know, Robert Mueller did find corruption and, you know, criminal activity. Only those cases uh, have, by and large, fallen apart uh, once they got to court. And a lot of the cases were ones in which they only brought because they never actually thought it would get to court. So they would just be able to throw it out there, make media headlines, and then it would never make it to court, showing that it was all BS. Right? but. You know, the CNN doesn't want to report on how those cases have fallen apart once it got to an examination of the evidence. You know, but this whole downplaying of it. Now, the best part of this, right, the best part of this comes a little bit uh, further down in the article, the second to last paragraph. And this, this is just unbelievable. So it goes on to read, those errors included wrong dates, incorrectly identified sources of information, FBI determinations that were asserted as facts, mistakes in direct quotations, and facts that lacked supporting documents or differed from what supporting documents said. The division said uh, none of these errors were material. Now, wait, 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 wait. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? None of these errors were material. So they got the wrong dates, which dates, you know, kind of matter, you know, in an investigation. Incorrectly identified sources. So, I mean, if you're saying that the source was Russian disinformation specialists and you incorrectly identify them 
to a different source in order to bolster your case. That's kind of a material mistake, but it gets worse. You know, the indirect or mistakes in direct quotations. That is also another big mistake. If you go off and you say, I did not rob a bank, and they incorrectly quote you by cutting off the first part and saying, I quote, I robbed a bank. You know, that, that is also kind of a mistake, you know, a kind of a material mistake. But the, my favorite one, my favorite one, were facts that lacked supporting documents or facts that differed from what the supporting document said. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? I have a set of facts, but I don't have any supporting documents to back up those facts. Or I have facts, but the documents that I have directly contradict those facts. Now, how is it facts if you, one, do not have anything to support it, or two, everything that you have collected debunks those facts? How are those facts? But that is really quite one of those interesting statements by CNN in an article. Facts that lack supporting documents are facts that differ from what supporting documents said. Wow, what a way to spin it. And they're trying to say it is the president that downplayed it. And you notice how they tried to stick that in with a couple of other things that made it seem like, oh, yeah, this is no big deal. You know, they list, you know, one or two things that may not be that big of a deal. And then they put in three or four things that are like, hey, you know, red alarms here. This is a big effing deal. This is this is really bad. You know, but they're downplaying it. And putting it, you know, the big stuff sandwiched in between a couple of little stuff. I mean, it is really quite one of those amazing things. Now, as far as it goes, we are finding out here that, you know, the investigation into the origins of Spygate, of the FBI spying operation into President Trump, well, it's actually a criminal investigation. It's not just an IG investigation. Now, some people are trying to say, well, the IG cleared the FBI of any wrongdoing. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. In fact, it's in the footnotes of the IG report uh, as well that the FBI, according to documentation, knew the information that they were investigating was Russian disinformation. I mean, the IG report really highlighted a lot of corruption uh, that had gone on that the left and the Democrats have been trying to underplay or some of the most damning things in the IG report were redacted. And we had to wait until they were declassified to get some of the worst of the worst stuff that the FBI had been doing. And of course, the left will not admit what the truth of the IG's findings are. But Attorney General William Barr you know, and this is being reported uh, by the you know Washington Times. You know, it says that what the FBI did to President Trump and the Russia probe was one of the greatest travesties in American history. He said investigator misdeeds went beyond mistakes or sloppiness to sabotage the presidency. You know, and that's one of the talking points that the left is trying to push to downplay everything is that oh, this was just mistakes and some sloppiness. Uh, Mr. Barr uh, went on to, in the interview with Laura Ingram on Fox News that the FBI lacks sufficient evidence to open an investigation into the Trump campaign. Now, John Durham, a U.S. attorney and the attorney general special investigator since March on the origins of the Trump-Russia election investigation, will file a report at some point. But Mr. Barr said his primary focus isn't to prepare a report. He's looking to bring to justice people who are engaged in abuses if he can show that there were criminal violations and that it was and that is what the focus is on. So when we go in and we take a look at John Durham's investigation, it's not to be like the IG report. No, no, no. He's looking at the criminal aspect of this because we have found out, you know, through, well, through a lot of leaks and investigations into the origins of the Russia probe that 
there was no basis for them to open up an investigation that what they were investigating they knew was false disinformation uh, and Russian disinformation. They sent in spies who came up empty, and they lied to the FISA courts, and they kept investigating. All right? So it's great to know that John Durham, his investigation isn't about a quality review. He's looking at a criminal investigation, which means at some point, we can start seeing some of the conspirators in Spygate thrown in handcuffs and put on trial. And one of the interesting things is if they get Comey in this, Comey is going to fold like a cheap suit and spill his guts. Now, they already have Andrew McCabe on some things, and it'll be interesting to see what Andrew McCabe is all telling people you know, in the investigation. But once they get uh, to Comey, Comey's going to fold like a cheap suit. And that's when we are likely to find out what did Obama know and when did he know it? How much of this spying operation was directed in coordination between President Obama and Hillary Clinton? Right now, that is an unanswered question. But I would very much like to get the answer to that question. All right, so that's it uh, for today's episode. I'd like to thank you so much uh, for tuning in. I appreciate that. Leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts, and I will be back again soon.